Well, good morning. If you are a guest here with us, my name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff as one of the pastors. I just delight to be able to worship alongside of you this morning. One, one, one other announcement uh, before we get going. In the new year, uh, starting uh, January the 9th, there's going to be a, a church-wide, so for men and women, uh, church-wide Bible study going through Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. And so I want to encourage you with that. It's said that we can either approach God's word by uh, raking for leaves or we can dig for gold. And uh, we're going we're gonna to seek to dig for the gold that is in this letter to the church in Ephesus that has great application for us today. And so I want to encourage you towards that. You can find out more information and register uh, at that URL you see on the TV screen. All right, well, we're continuing in the Gospel of John. If you'll go to John chapter 1, we're going to continue there. It's the Christmas season. It's Advent. This is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, We are in the second Sunday of Advent, and the word Advent means a coming or an arrival, and we're, we're celebrating Jesus' first arrival He was born a baby boy to Joseph and Mary some 2,000 years ago. It is just too easy for us to get busy and distracted in this most important season. That's why these these Advent things that you you may do at at home that we do here with the candles and the specific sermon series, these, these are all intentional to help turn and direct our attention to the most important thing in this season, the first advent of Jesus. And as I mentioned, we're in the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, Pastor Bob took us through the majority of John's prologue, where John gave us the backstory about some of what we can expect in his Gospel. Spoiler alert, the Gospel of John is all about Jesus. (laughs) And this morning, we are going to be finishing up the prologue looking at verses 14 through 18. But because we are kind of getting at the tail end, I, I thought it would serve us for a couple reasons to go ahead and read the, the whole prologue at this point. So I'm going to read it. You guys follow along. John chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and here we're talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. In verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will or the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's our passage for this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he, comes after, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. I hope you found that helpful, and maybe now, after having read it all together, maybe one thing you noticed is that John actually does a little subtle shift in the prologue, starting with verse 14, right? So in verses 1 through 13, uh, John is giving a a big sweeping background story of the gospel. He starts all the way in eternity past with the creation of everything through the word, and he makes his way up to the present with the reception of the divine word, the true light, by believing Christians. But then starting in verse 14, John gets a bit more personal. Did you he, did he notice all the pronouns, us, we, and even those in John the Baptist's testimony? You see what's going on here is the apostle John is situating himself amongst the believing community and he is telling us their confessional response to the incarnation of Jesus into history. Now here's the the connection for for us here this morning. If, If you and I are to appropriately respond to Jesus and his first advent, we must share their confessional response to the incarnation of Jesus. In fact, I'll go a step further. Because John's purpose, the purpose that he wrote his gospel was to stir up belief in Jesus, what we see here in verses 14 through 18 is John giving us two confessions that we must make if we are to savingly believe in Jesus. I mean, if we're we're to love Jesus rightly, if we're to worship Jesus rightly, if we're to take hold of eternal life in Jesus, we must believe certain non-negotiable truths about Jesus. And John isn't giving us all that we ought to believe about Jesus, but he is giving us two confessions that you must make if you are to savingly believe in Jesus. So let's, let's look at these two confessions. The first is found in the beginning of verse 14, following me as I read it here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. If we're to savingly believe in Jesus, we must confess that Jesus, the word, there we go, gloriously became flesh and dwelt among us. John circles back to where he started in his prologue with the word. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Bob helped us by looking forward to verse 17, and we'll get to that in a a moment here. But that's where John tells us who this word is, namely Jesus Christ. And the word Jesus Christ is the eternal God, distinct from the Father who created everything. Jesus Christ, the word, shined the light of life into the dark world and into darkened hearts. Now, the word has already been described as a he, as a, as a person, and now John tells us that the word became flesh. Jesus took on flesh. That, that's the way that we want to think about this 
he became, he, he took on flesh. In other words, it's not that he changed into. Cheap illustration, when I became a husband and then a father, I, I did not cease being me. And so it is with the eternal word. Jesus didn't cease being God when he took on flesh. Rather, he became the God-man. And what's more, this new form would not be temporary or rever reversible, but rather permanent and irreversible. In other words, right now, Jesus is enthroned in heaven as an embodied male. The first few hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection were, were dominated were, through the, the wrestling of, of who is this Jesus? More and more people wanted to understand who he was. Indeed, God's people wanted to have accuracy and precision about knowing who this God-man was. And one heresy, an unbiblical teaching brought about by a man named Arius, taught that Jesus was not God, but only a man. And this was rejected at the Council of Nicaea in 325 that produced, you might have heard this one, the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is affirming biblical truths about the Trinity and very specifically about the Son of God, Jesus being God. Other heresies about Jesus still cropped up. In fact, just the opposite would come about where Jesus was only God and not a man. Again, more heresies would come about. Then in 451, because of yet another heresy about Jesus, just a side note, uh, the, the councils that convened in church history were not because uh, people were eager for business meetings. They, they normally came about because there was a heresy in the church. And they like, hey, well, this doesn't sound like what we've been teaching. Let's get together and say, nope, that is wrong. Well, in 451, because of another heresy about Jesus, the Chalcedon Council convened, which produced the Chalcedonian Creed. Now that creed starts off like this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. The, the creed goes on, but its confession is clear. The word did not cease being God when he took on flesh. Rather, being both truly God and truly man, Jesus became the God-man. I hope it's not hard to see that, in fact, both of these creeds, the Nicene and the Chalcedonian Creed, use John's prologue as the formative scripture to base these creeds off of. All right, back to the text. John wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, more literally, dwelt could be uh, translated as he pitched his tent, he tabernacled amongst us. Maybe even, in fact, your translation has a footnote that might even say that. And the glory seen is the visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. Now, John certainly has the Old Testament in mind here when he says that the word tabernacled amongst us. John certainly has the Old Testament in mind when he says that, wherein God took the initiative and command 
commanded his people to build him the tabernacle so that he may dwell in their midst. And God's presence through his Shekinah glory came down veiled in a cloud, first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. This veiled presence of God foreshadowed what would come. And John makes clear fulfillment and replacement, the better has come. The tabernacle is now the word became flesh. And in the person of Jesus, the Shekinah glory of God's presence is perfectly seen and experienced amongst his people. If we're to savingly believe in Jesus, we must confess Jesus, the word, gloriously became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, why? What, why do we have to believe that? Well, not only did if you early church history struggle and wrestle with desiring to know who their Lord and Savior was, but even sort of within the church biblical history, they did as well. The same John who wrote this gospel wrote a couple of letters. You probably know them as 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And in 1 John, writing to a church, the apostle writes this, uh, and this is 1 John 4, 2 through 3. It's on the screens. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus has come in the flesh from God is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You see, friends, confessing Jesus came in the flesh and dwelt among his people is a non-negotiable truth claim. The spirit of the Antichrist says otherwise. Theologian Michael Reeves says, if the Son of God was to be the last Adam, to undo the fall, to be the head of a new humanity, to be one with his people, his bride, then he needed to become human. He needed to be in real pinchable reality, what had so long been promised, the seed of a woman. It was absolutely necessary for the word to take on flesh. The preacher of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, 14 through 17. Since therefore the children, folks like you and I, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that for this purpose, through death, he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, in view of all that the preacher just said, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, for this purpose, he might become a faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, a wrath-atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. In, in solidarity with those whom he created, Jesus took on flesh to, to be our representative, to, to be our 
merciful and faithful high priest to make a wrath-atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. But it's not merely to make a wrath-atoning sacrifice, but it was to be the wrath-atoning sacrifice for his people. This is why John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just later in John chapter 1, verse 29. What's more, brothers and sisters, we're not just celebrating that the word dwelt among his people some 2,000 years ago. We, we are celebrating that the, that the one who became like one of us to save us still dwells amongst his people today in and through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Yes, amen. This is not a historical fact. This is a present reality for those who are trusting in Jesus that he dwells amongst his people right now. Peter tells us that we who are in Christ are God's temple, the temple of the living God, and that God's spirit dwells in us. And so we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20 that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus dwells within you to empower you to ongoing faith and transformation. Jesus is with you. In your deepest pain, in your greatest despair, your feelings, your circumstances, do not determine his presence with you. If you are trusting in Jesus, for those who are weak and weary, those who are lost and confused, those who are seemingly helplessly fighting repetitive sin, if you are trusting in Jesus, the unchanging spiritual reality is that Jesus has made his tabernacle your heart. So brothers and sisters, you are never alone. Jesus will never forsake you, nor leave you. These are blood-bought promises from the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He accomplished something in his dwelling. Jesus is with you, but it's not just individually, but also collectively. Peter calls us together living stones, being built up together as a spiritual household. Jesus dwells with his people. And just as Jesus manifested God in the world, we too, together with Christ in us, are to in similar and dissimilar ways, manifest Jesus through word and deed to those around us, ministering to them in their suffering and their pain and their lostness. One more application before we turn to the other confession. There is strength for today and there is bright hope for tomorrow because Jesus dwelt, dwells, and will dwell forevermore 
with his people. The, the same John who wrote this gospel says in Revelation 21, two through four, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the heaven saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Because of that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore because the former things have passed away. What we must confess if we are to savingly believe in Jesus is that Jesus, the word, gloriously became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the second confession is found in the, in the rest of our passage. So let's, let's read uh, in the middle of 14. Uh, John writes, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If we're to savingly believe in Jesus, we must confess that Jesus is the glorious only son of God, full of grace and truth, who makes known the Father. Jesus is the only son from the Father, the one and only, the one of a kind son from the Father. Now, this is not referring to singularity. I mean, a few verses earlier in 12, John wrote, all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Only means to capture the uniqueness of Jesus's sonship. You see, John the Baptist's testimony in verse 15 affirms this uniqueness by calling out Jesus' preeminence, superiority. And Brothers and sisters, those who are trusting in Jesus, you know this to be true. God has other children, spiritual children, but Jesus is the one-of-a-kind son from the Father, incomparable to all others. Now, what about this glory scene? The glory scene is Jesus, the only son from the Father. It's this Shekinah glory embodied, but it's a bit more. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger says this, John reveals through the course of his narrative and particularly in the words of Jesus that the glory seen of is a crucified glory, a glory that shines forth initially in selected messianic signs of Jesus and subsequently finds its climactic expression in the exaltation of the sun at the cross in keeping with Isaiah's vision of Jesus' glory. Hence the thrust of Jesus' mission in its entirety is the revelation of God's glory. From the first sign in Cana, the water and the wine, to the cross, and the raising of the new temple, that is Jesus' body on the third day. 
God's glory is shown to us in Christ. It is shown to us in Christ because he is perfectly, end of verse 14, full of grace and truth. Now let me show you what John means by this phrase. It's repeated in verse 17 where Moses is in juxtaposition to Jesus and that gives us a big clue about what John is trying to tell us. You see, taken in combination, grace and truth, John means to reflect the two primary Hebrew terms most often used in the Old Testament to characterize God, hesed and emeth. And John most certainly has in mind Moses' encounter with God in Exodus. Now, probably weren't expecting to go to Exodus this morning, but we're gonna go there briefly. In Exodus 33, 18, it's gonna be on the screens, I think, uh, Moses boldly pleads to Yahweh, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then we're still within the same account now in Exodus 34, 6. Here's the outcome we read in verse 6. The Lord Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, has said, and faithfulness, emeth. God's covenant name, Yahweh, is expressed in terms of his character. And the, the word steadfast love and faithfulness, those are the two primary Hebrew terms more often used in the Old Testament to describe the character of God. Has said is often translated steadfast love, covenant love, faithful love, or loving kindness. Maybe I nailed one of y'all's translations. And emeth is often translated faithfulness, truth, or reliability. So John uses this phrase, grace and truth, to, to capture this image of those two most used characteristics of God to say that that's Jesus. In other words, John is conveying the, the glory that Moses pleaded to see, but could only be revealed to him through the proclamation and explanation of Yahweh's name. That glory is the very glory John and his friends saw in the Word who became flesh, the incarnate Son from the Father, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. What was uniquely characteristic of Yahweh in the Old Testament has embodied visibly in the person of Jesus. That, that's why after juxtaposing Moses and Jesus in verse 17, John emphatically says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the Father. The only God, and the ESV footnotes, the only one who is God or the only Son, no one has ever seen God. Ah, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Literally, he has explained him. Jesus Christ, the glorious, 
one-of-a-kind son from the Father, full of grace and truth through his life, death, and resurrection, paints us the perfect image that explains the Father's heart for his covenant people. I mean, in all of this, John is just piling on terms and expressions that just say Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Back to verse 16. John writes, and let's, let's actually go to the middle of 14. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John is saying that since Jesus is full, filled up with grace and truth, that out of that fullness, he and his friends graciously received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace could be translated grace in place of grace. It, it, it pictures God's grace as an ocean of unending waves washing over us where each wave replaces the next. And John explains what he means in verse 17. For, here's the reason that we've received grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now listen, the law was God's Grace. God graciously gave his law through his intermediary, Moses. That is what the given through is trying to communicate. This wasn't Moses' law. This was God's law that he gave through an intermediary, Moses. The law wasn't absent. Grace and truth, it was filled with God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people, the law revealed God's holy character. It instructed his people how to live in ways pleasing to him and made provision for atonement of sin. That said, the law was but a shadow of the good thing to come. It pointed God's people to the need for the new covenant, wherein grace and truth climactically came through was established by Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's steadfast love and faithfulness were perfectly established. They, it came through Jesus Christ. If we're to savingly believe in Jesus, we must confess Jesus is the glorious only Son of God, full of grace and truth, who makes known the Father. Now, why? Why, why must we confess this? Again, John, he tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. It, it's not enough, friends, it's not enough to simply believe in the historical Jesus. There are, there are numerous uh, atheistic historians that will agree to a historic Jesus. To savingly believe in Jesus, you must believe that the man Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, full of grace and truth. Again, Michael Reeves, our salvation is only as good as it 
our salvation is only as good as it is because Christ is who he is. Make him less than God and you make the gospel less than good. Our salvation required no less than God himself to sinlessly enter into the world that he created, to righteously fulfill the law, to make atonement for the sin of his people, and to rise conquering sin and death. Brothers and sisters, we must confess that Jesus is the glorious only Son of God, full of grace and truth, who makes known the Father. I'm going to share with you the application that I did for myself at this point when I was writing through. I did some self-assessment, and so I'm just going to let you enter into my own self-assessment here. We're going to do some self-assessment about our functional belief in this. Well, I mean, if you're trusting in Jesus, we, we proclaim these things on Sunday morning. What, what about on Thursday night? When you're alone and discouraged. Picture it. You're finally sitting alone. Parents, the kid's been put in the bed for the seventh time. You are now alone, left with your thoughts, head in your hands, not sure how you can go on and weighed down by anxiety and stress, the, the guilt of sin looms large and Jesus approaches you and you and you see his face what look does he have what is his disposition towards you is it full of disappointment Frustration, displeasure. I'll tell you what it is. If you've received the one who gives you wave after wave of his grace, then despite your feelings, despite your circumstances, despite your present struggle with sin, Jesus is filled with grace and truth, steadfast covenant, love and faithfulness towards you. Amen. And he isn't that towards you because of anything in and of yourself. He's that way towards you because of what he's done and who he is for you. Brothers and sisters, know for sure that Jesus' disposition towards you because of the cross is full of grace and truth. Now, this doesn't mean that he may not lovingly discipline you for your sin. There may be consequences, but Jesus is nevertheless filled up with covenant love and faithfulness for you, his covenant children. And we know this to be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So we, we confess these things to be true on Sundays. But, but what about uh, amidst our anxieties and 
hopelessness and fears and worry. What about then? Do you still believe Jesus is filled up with grace and truth toward you? I mean, these are the moments, right, when we can describe the Christian life as the battle of what you feel versus what is real and true in God's word. In those moments of discouragement when faith is weak, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the objective truths of scripture into your subjective living. What's more, reach out to a brother and sister in Christ and, and have them do the same. Jesus is the glorious only son of God, full of grace and truth, who makes known the Father. What a, what a great passage for Advent. This is, this is a quintessential passage on the incarnation of Jesus. John does a little bit different than the other gospel writers. He goes all the way to eternity past and says the word created everything. And that word who was pre-existent and created everything, that word, that word has entered into the world that he created. He entered into the redemptive story that he's writing. He entered in. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He's full of grace and truth. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's come to rescue his people. This is what we're all about here in this Advent and Christmas season. Jesus. I mean, as cheesy as it may sound, it's true. We should desire to keep Christ in Christmas. We should desire to love and worship Jesus rightly. But if we're going to do that, we do have to we have to believe certain non-negotiable truths about Jesus. Is it the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of our own making? And John hasn't given us all the things we ought to confess about Jesus, but he does give us two confessions that you must make if you are to savingly believe in Jesus. He's the word. He gloriously became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the only son of God, full of grace and truth, who makes known the Father. Now, I'd be remiss to not following John's steps. John's whole purpose in writing his gospel account is to stir up saving faith in Jesus. If you are here this morning, and these are not confessions that, that you're making with your whole heart, I want you to think back just for a moment the fact that this Jesus, the creator of everything, is full of grace and truth. He's just brimming over with it. It's just spilling out endlessly. In other words, there is enough grace and truth for you as well. Today's the day I would encourage you to consider the word who became flesh. But for the rest of us, by God's empowering grace, let's seek to confess these things together this season and to live in the good of them together Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. It is a, a gracious gift of yours that we have this word. John 1, 14 through 18. To be able to know you. You are the God who entered into the story to redeem a people for yourself. You not only dwelt, but you dwell with us 
Oh, I pray, would you, would you help us? We, we need your help to not, to not hear these words and then leave them behind as soon as we walk out the doors. Would, would these truth claims continue to echo in our hearts and minds, causing transformation and worship? We love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.